Why can't I see him? Dave, I told you. The DA came down here last night ready to arraign even before they moved into county, okay? Kint's lawyer shows up five minutes later. The DA comes out of the office looking like the boogeyman smacked him around. All right? They take a statement and they cut him a deal. But did they charge him with anything? Yeah, weapons. Misdemeanor, too. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 102, and our movie this week was The Usual Suspects. And joining me to talk about it, because somehow he'd never seen it before, Stephen Adams from Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. Stephen, how you doing? Hello, party people. Hey, Travis. Thank you again for having me. I'm so excited. Let's oh, do this. I am too. So you sent me a text message last night while you were watching the movie partway through. Yeah. And all I could do is be like, I just, I have to wait because I know there's going to be a follow-up coming to this in about 15 to 20 minutes. And sure enough, that was the the message I got. So first question I have is how did you make it this long without seeing this movie? Cause it feels like a movie that would, would be something you would have liked. It, it would have. And l- let me tell you, we got to date this movie first so you can understand so I can date myself, and it's either make you feel good or bad as a listener. This movie came out in 95. Mm-hmm. I was 10. Right. Um, I didn't know, like, okay, 96, I was starting to get into movies more like this because I had friends that were into movies like this, but I just completely missed it. Not only that, missed it through Brian Singer's run on X-Men where it was like, Brian Singer, director of Usual Suspects. And I'm like, okay. Didn't look at it then either. Didn't get my curiosity then. Uh, and then all the way to meeting my uh, my brotato, Jacob, who this is like his favorite movie in the world, just go, oh, you like Usual Suspects. That's nice. <laughs> it's like, don't, <laughs> don't even, just don't even, like, it's not in my radar, man. I don't know how I missed it. It's, it was a travesty. Well, we fixed that now. So the first place to go with this movie is the cast, because the cast is just unreal and the more it's it's another one of those movies where the more people you see in it the more the better the cast gets now we'll start with the the elephant in the room which is kevin spacey um yeah in in part because with the revelations and things that have come out over the last couple of years with him and with brian singer um to their past it's it's difficult right to to watch a movie with kevin spacey i talked about that when we covered um baby driver back a while a while ago yeah um it, it's tough because he's such a talented actor and he's so good in this movie now i can separate it a little bit art and artist because i have a history with this movie um but i completely understand when you can't do that and it, and you know we're never going to know the full true 100 percent stories of everything that's happened but I want to err on the side of like the, the victims, the people that have come out, uh, you know, the, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt and not, not believe them. Right. Which sure. means that if what he did is what happened, that's pretty, pretty bad. But putting that aside, he's just so good in this movie and you can see why he won an Academy award for it. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, it's a tragedy in a, in a weird way when, an actor that's so good at 
acting and like doing their job or anyone that's good at doing their job ends up being a sucky human being. Yeah. Because you're, so you're like, dude, we want to love you. And you've <laughs> just made such horrendous mistakes that we can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, if you it, it's I, I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but like after the whole event occurred where it came out that Kevin Spacey was a weird creeper. Everyone goes, yeah, Kevin Spacey's a weird creeper. <laughs> like, it's just not a mystery in Hollywood. Uh, and then it even makes it worse that you're like, well, this is also a Brian Singer movie. Ew. <laughs> you yeah. know? You're kind of like, this yeah. This is this whole thing, you got to you gotta find a way to separate and go, it's a piece of art. Uh, I'm, I'm okay with doing that in most cases. If that makes me a villain, I guess I'm okay to, to handle it. Like, once I know they're a creeper, I don't want to watch a Roman Polanski movie. Uh, mm-hmm. like I know it now, like uh, if he makes another movie, I still know he's on the lam for being convicted of a crime. Uh, mm-hmm. that's gross. Why are yeah. we working with him? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is in the past before we knew it. It's a product of its time. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's different when you're looking back at something like if Kevin Spacey were to make a movie now, you'd be like, Hmm. I mean, flipping, uh, Christopher Plummer took over for all the money in the world after yeah. shooting the movie. Right. Because Kevin Spacey was in it. Um, if that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what does. Yeah. And and for me, it really is a case-by-case basis. Like, Roman Polanski is a perfect one and one that I was going to bring up. I love Chinatown. That movie is phenomenal. It's one of the better movies I've seen. But it's Roman Polanski. I can separate that. That happened so long ago. But if he puts out a new movie, yeah, I'm looking yeah. at it a little sideways. I did the same thing with Baby Driver. Uh, that came out like I didn't see it until after everything about Spacey had come out. And it's like, oh well, okay, so he's not acting as much as we thought, and it's just kind of who he is. Um, but it, it, it depends. Yeah. Polanski well, it, too. The thing with Polanski is he was convicted, right? It's uh, right. and that's that's a huge distinction to make over like Brian Singer and Kevin Spacey can be pretty uh, are are allegedly pretty terrible people um, in terms of what they've done but they've never been convicted of anything, which means I kind of, maybe it does make me a villain too. I don't know, but I, I want to give them a little more benefit of the doubt. Spacey's done a lot of stuff to try and, and help people as well. It's just that he seems to have some uh, impulse control issues, and that's not good. You and, you and, you and I are both positive thinkers, I <laughs> think, when it comes down to it. We're, we're, we're generally positive. We enjoy looking at multiple sides of a thing and going, well, maybe we assume positive intent because mm-hmm. I think it helps us sleep better at night. Oh, uh, and sure. the Chinatown thing, too, that goes back a million years ago as well. And that was, I don't know, was he convicted at that point when he made Chinatown? He's still working in America, so he couldn't have been. No, his on conviction the came then. after that. Yeah, pretty sure. Yeah, so it's another one of those things where, like, if the art was made before the conviction, can you, can you swallow it better? Can you stomach the uh, the piece of art a little bit easier maybe I'm less I'm it's like I'm less annoyed with the fact that he's making movies than the fact that there are people that are well known that are agreeing to be in them <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm more upset at those people like what are you doing yeah true um, he did really bad things and got caught don't say no like you can work with literally anyone else yeah <laughs> what are you doing yep that is a pretty good point. <laughs> But talking about Kevin Spacey in this movie, like he is sure. just nailing yeah. it. He's knocking it out of the park and he's playing a very interesting character because he really has so many different sides to him. And so he's mm-hmm. 
he doesn't have one distinct portrayal. There's moments where he's he's conniving. There's moments where he seems very uh, almost innocent. Um, and uh, and I did read that he did a lot of research on cerebral palsy to try and portray that more accurately um, on screen, even to the point of super gluing his hand into that shape and uh, filing down one of his shoes so that it felt more natural to walk with that limp and kind of dragging that shoe, like what would happen. So, you know, he went he went to some pretty good lengths to portray uh, the character of Verbal Kint. And, um, oh, uh, before we get too far, we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie, so be ready for that, because there's a pretty big spoiler in here, and if you don't want to know it, um, stop listening and come back after you've watched the movie. The movie is the spoiler. Yes. So just... Like I was telling Stephanie, I was like, I know you don't care when I spoil movies, but you have to care with this movie. Like, you can't, I'm not going to ruin it because most of the joy of it is not knowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then if you go back and watch it again, it's such a different movie to watch. Um, oh, I'd imagine so. But yeah, I mean, Spacey is just he's he's great in this, and the whole the whole thing is told from his perspective, right? He's doing the it's kind of kind of got that noir feel where he's doing everything in flashback. Um, it's it's all told from his perspective, which makes the ending even that much more of a head scratcher because now you spend the next twenty minutes or whatever just thinking about, well, okay, so how much of what I just heard is even true? Which I, I also quite adore. So yeah, I mean, he's just he's so good in this, and it's, it, it, I understand why he won the ninety five Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. By the way, supporting actor, he wasn't the top build. Yeah. Right. I mean, he did, he did a fantastic job. Like every, everything, the, the awkwardness, the, he had me sympathetic. Mm -hmm. I was sympathetic to him. I was like, Oh, Oh, this guy, he's like a criminal, but like, I mean, he kind of seems like he's bad, but is really in it just because it's the only thing he's good at, maybe? Or he's just the meek one amongst all these hotheads? Yeah. And I always kind of gravitate towards the meek one in a room full of hotheads. I'm like, that that guy. I need to go find him. I need to yep. make sure he's okay and he's got to stress it out. And that's how I <laughs> felt with him. I was like, that guy, he's the one that I would gravitate to to try to make feel more comfortable in this room of nutbags. Like I, I got to get in there and make him all right. And I, we cannot talk about him without choosing, like, talking about his character's hairstyle because he was definitely channeling Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley. <laughs> I don't know if everybody else saw it, but if you look up Squiggy from Laverne and Shirley, but Squiggy, he's yeah. bold. He's making the move. Yeah. That's not a look that a you lot of people go for. So no, that little that little devil's like peak widow's peak thing. Yep, where it's like a <laughs> sharp point. <laughs> Ashley says, "Who's squiggly?" Yeah, of course. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's just he's great. Now, opposite him for most of the movie is um, Chaz Palminteri as as Agent David Kuyan. He was who Brian Singer wanted originally, but then at one point he couldn't have he couldn't get Chaz. And there was all this stuff, and then he became available. I like Palminteri in this because he does such a good job of playing like the really confident uh, agent who thinks he's got the upper hand the whole time. And like, he's just going to get this guy's just going to be a pushover. I mean, he should have known better from the beginning yeah. anyway, because this guy's a con artist. That's that's verbal Kent's whole thing is he's a short con operator. So, but uh, Palminteri is, is super fun in this as uh Kulian. 
he really does almost all of his work in that one room too. He doesn't get to be in much of the flashbacks. And I really like that. It feels like one of those two man shows. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was really good. I couldn't place where I saw him from. I kept trying to, there's so many faces in this movie. Oh yeah. So many faces. I'm like, I know that dude. Like the dude that that dude talks to is the dude from Adam's family. Uh, in the first one that was like, I'm a lawyer or whatever. Like that guy. I love that guy. He's a fantastic character actor. I have no idea who he is. His name is Dan. uh, His name is Dan Hedaya. And I love love him. Like he's, he was in, um, alien resurrection. He was in Adam's family. He's in one of my favorite movies of all time. Running scared. He's the police captain in that. That's actually for the longest time. That's what I knew him as was the captain in running scared. Like that was what I associated him with. He was in commando. Um, with Schwarzenegger, he's the bat. He's the big bad guy in Commando. Like he's he's great. He is one of those. And he was um, uh, Cheers, Nick Tortelli in Cheers. Yeah, that's where I remember it. Well, I, I initially remember it from Adam's Family, and mm-hmm. then when I watched Cheers, I was like, dude, dude's from Adam's Family. Yep. He was like the smelly guy that was married to uh, married to Carla. Yep. Yeah. He's yeah. Uh, he's a great character actor. I, I love him. So that was he's one of those fantastic. other great things seeing this. Uh, Gabriel Byrne as Dean Keaton kills it and he's got such a hard job because he is he's sort of the leader of the group he's the de facto leader but then is he Kaiser Soze or isn't he you don't really know for most of the movie now the 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 interesting thing was he wasn't going to do this movie they wanted Brian Singer wanted him wanted him bad he was Brian Singer was a huge Miller's Crossing fan and wanted uh, Gabriel Byrne Apparently, Byrne was going through some kind of personal stuff at the time. So when they came to him and they talked to him, he's like, no, I don't want to do it. And they kept asking him. He's like, I I can't do it. And finally said, "Okay, look, fine. If you can shoot the movie in five weeks and you can shoot the whole thing in L.A., I'll do it. And they came back to him and were like, we're shooting in 35 days and we're shooting in L.A. Can you do this? And so he was like, all right, fine. I guess I have to. Um, And he was a huge get because he was even in 95 Kevin Spacey wasn't a household name yet. This is this and seven was the same year. And that's kind of what put him on the map. But Gabriel Byrne was known. He had been around for a little while and he again is so good. I also love the story that somebody asked him at, I don't know if it was the the premiere or a premiere for the movie, you know? So who did you know, or um, who did you think was Kaiser Soze? And he's like, for the entirety of filming and until today, I thought I was. He didn't know um, that that's what the the direction they were going to go. And in fact, Singer kept trying to get him to put the coat and the hat on for that one shot. And he, he was like, why? Why do you want to finally? He's like, look, I'm just a big Miller's Crossing fan. I want to see you in the hat. Okay, well, you put it on and we can film it. But, <laughs> but again. This is one of those movies. This is one of those movies where the behind the scenes is almost as fun, if not more fun than the movie itself. Oh, Totally. Uh, like, I, I think I could watch uh, how they made The Usual Suspects and have probably more fun mm-hmm. watching that. Uh, because, simply because the way it came together, you've mentioned the 35 days, the Los Angeles, the he didn't get this guy, didn't get that guy. There's so many little things where this movie was just, it made me feel like it was if Kevin Smith had a budget to make something with his friends. That was mm-hmm. the jo- the vibe around it is like, I'm going to get these buddies these actors I really want. I'm going to put them together. I'm going to convince them all these things, help them do this, do that. Each character, each 
er- actor, like we gotta talk about Benicio del Toro and his oh. accent. Like they bring their own things to the characters, just like I'm gonna do this. And things where Brian Singer was just like, "Eff it, do whatever you want." Like the <laughs> whole lineup scene. Yeah, like it's it's amazing. It's it's definitely one of those things where like all the people that came together to create something each got to put their fingerprints on it. Mm-hmm. And I love that Christopher McQuarrie's script, Brian Singer's direction, uh, Benicio del Toro doing his thing. The little the little things they left in that weren't even supposed to be in there that they're just like, I'm using that cut. Yeah, I'm using, I'm doing it. Well, you know, it's what it is, is it's independent filmmaking, right? So this movie was made for six million dollars yeah. in 1995, which even in 1995 is a tiny budget for a film. Most of the actors took pay cuts in order to do it. Um, it was Brian Singer's second feature length film. He had done one a couple of years earlier called Public Access, and that, uh, that hit like Cannes and I think Sundance. And Spacey saw it at Sundance and, and wanted to work with him and Gabriel Byrne. Like, that's basically how all that got going. But yeah, it is. It's great because, okay, so Benicio del Toro, we got to talk about him. This was yes. the movie that I remember him from. It doesn't matter what else I see him in, and I've seen him in so many things at this point. He will always be Fenster. He was described in the making of for this. His accent was, and I'm quoting now, okay. Black Chinese Puerto Rican Jew. <laughs> That's what he called it? That's what he called it and Singer called it. And and what it was is Del Toro came to him and is like, look, this character doesn't do anything. Like his purpose in the story is to die. It doesn't right. matter what he says. He can say anything. He can say it however he wants. Let me run with this. And they did. And it's so good because now he's like Kevin Pollack said, he wasn't even going to be in this movie because originally the character of Fenster was written. Fenster and McManus were always written as a pair, but the original kind of incarnation of it was young guy, old guy. Fenster was sort of the veteran and they, they had him. Uh, the name that I heard a lot was Harry Dean Stanton was who they had in mind for Fenster originally. So this character that wasn't even supposed to be like Benicio del Toro at all, he comes along and just steals every scene he's in. Um, they even had like, uh, this, this might be my favorite thing was, is this quote. What did you say? That's not (laughs) the character of Todd Hockney saying that that's Kevin Pollack. The actor had no idea what he was saying and they just left it in the movie. Um, because yeah, half the time nobody knows the, the bit in the lineup where the guy says in English, please, that was ad libbed. Um, the lineup itself is so that's like the lineup is what was the genesis for this entire movie. According to Macquarie, he came up with this idea to put five felons in a lineup and that's where the story started. And that scene is great because it was scripted serious. It was scripted to be played really straight, but they were stuck in that room all day doing takes. And just like you don't put five felons in the same lineup, you don't put five actors like that in a room together and it's not expected to go crazy, especially if Kevin Pollack is involved because that dude is hilarious. And sure enough, <laughs> I love the stories that singer would get upset and finally just gave up and just like, fine, do whatever you want. I don't care. And it's, it's the most memorable scene in the movie. It really is. It, it, sure. Without that, this movie doesn't work. If that scene is played straight and played serious, the whole movie is different because you yeah, get the. You learn a lot about the characters in that in that 
scene and who they are and how how they just do not care about what's going on because they know nobody's got anything on them. Why would they be afraid? Mm -hmm. The cops got nothing and they know the cops got nothing. And like Ashley was saying in the chat, one of the behind the scenes stories that cracked me up the most is that Benicio Del Toro farted like 17 times in that room with everybody. And that's half the reason they were cracking up is that they were just kept passing gas. According to him, according to him, someone farted in the room. Which is yes, great. Someone. someone did, but Kevin yeah, Pollock was sure. like, "Yeah, it was Benicio. He was just cracking them off left and right." Um, and you, you have to play that scene the way you did it because each character got their way of doing. It, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, McFly in the chat brings up the way Stephen Baldwin did it with that, like, ah, oh yeah, end, like you know the whole like aggressive way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Benicio del Toro's Finster just doesn't even care to say it with any kind of. <laughs> he's just lazy as it can get. It's just, it's so well done. You've got like, you just get, this is your team. This mm-hmm. is who we're going to watch. Let's see what happens. It's really cool how it set that up. Yeah. And then, okay, so you brought up Stephen Baldwin, which we haven't talked about yet. He's, he is the unhinged hothead of the group, um, which is a perfect role for Baldwin to play. Uh, young Stephen Baldwin, too. I had forgotten, and I forgot how blue his eyes were. Like, there's some shots where it's just yeah. his face, and I'm just like, Okay, I get I get why people think the Baldwins were so attractive in the '90s because holy hell, like he's a good looking guy. Um, they're, they're piercing. I mean, yes. he did Biodome and just shot his career to the moon, right? That's oh, yeah. what happened. That's the totally. story. That's how it goes. I flip, I flip it. I love Biodome. Come at me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. I saw I saw it in theaters, so you know I'm I'm there with you. I don't hate that movie. It's Saturday afternoon, and I'm eating bagel bites. I'm watching Biodome. There you go. Don't at me. Um. But him and so apparently him and Kevin Pollack have a bit of beef uh, that started from this movie. And I think some of that was Pollock has even said, you know, well, he kind of just really got into his character and was kind of bullying towards everybody else. And I can see I can absolutely see Stephen Baldwin doing that, like just totally getting into the machismo of that character. Um, But he's so good at it. And he's got this weird like. So he's got the he's got the explosive intensity, but then he's got this this other intensity. The shot, the the scene where they capture Kobayashi, the the lawyer, and when he walks up to him and just he puts he rests the gun against his face, but he gets right up into his ear and like whispers into his ear. It's almost like bordering on trying to seduce him when he's telling him like, "I'm the one that's gonna get you." It's this weird, like extra level of intensity that there's not a ton of actors that can give you that. And I think, you know, that's like, that's a Stephen Baldwin moment. Um, Kevin Pollack, of course, is really funny. And you, what I love too is, uh, later on, he played a Hungarian mobster in the whole nine yards after doing this movie. Um, but he just got to riff and you can tell that he got to ad lib a lot. Um, and he just, he's great. And, and he plays that character that literally doesn't care about anyone else. Like they find Fenster dead yeah. and he's just like, screw it. I'm running. You know, he does, he yeah. does not care. Um, you think some of their beef came from the fact that you just don't bully a wise guy. Oh, like, I'm sure. It, like, it seems like those are the two, like if you take a nerd and a jock, like the jock bullies a nerd, but the nerd's smarter than the jock. I'm sorry, jocks. I'm just using it <laughs> A basic uh, analogy. I know you're probably smart, but you know what I mean. Like, there's mm-hmm. the you you have to, when you're the nerdy comedian, like wise guy. You have to build a different set of muscles. 
yeah. to defend yourself from the people with actual muscles. Mm-hmm. And that's that, those two clash. Unless they can be friends, they're going to butt heads. And oh, that, sure. that just seems like what would have happened in that scenario. Yeah. But what it does is it it gave the the tension between the two of them a real feeling in the movie. The characters are supposed to be at odds. Yeah. So if the actors kind of let some of that spill over into real life, I'm sure they're probably cordial with each other now, 20-something, almost 30 years later. But, like, I can see that happening. Because, again, it's intense guys. I mean, Pollock is a comedian, but he's also an impressionist and a hell of an actor. And Baldwin is just, he doesn't know how to turn it off sometimes. So I get it. Uh, some of the other kind of small characters I want to bring up is um, Giancarlo Esposito as Agent Jack Bear. So yeah, everybody he is he obviously Breaking Bad. He's uh, in the Mandalorian. He shows up in um, uh, the Boys. I always think of him from this movie, always, and it's so weird to see him now because I'm like, God, he looks so old. I always picture him as this young guy with that little tiny stoke, like the most relaxed FBI agent you'll ever see. Um, but yeah, Giancarlo Esposito yeah. Uh, doesn't have a ton of time on screen, but he's awesome. Like he's just fun. He's, you can tell he's having a good time. Yeah. He makes good use of his screen time. Like I loved watching the scenes he was in, even, even though they were, like you said, they were short. I was still like, Holy crap. That's Giancarlo Esposito. Like now he's kind of typecast as villain, Mm -hmm. you know, guy. It's like from breaking bad. He played Gus so well. He'll be Gus to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know this movie came first, but he'll always be Gus to me. And you brought up an interesting, uh, interesting thought about how who who how old they are. I was coming at it like, look how young these dudes look. <laughs> oh my gosh! Like Benicio del Toro has he has a different face. Yeah, He's kind a of different human, like, completely. And I, I was really shocked at that. I mean, I haven't seen Gabriel Byrne play in something in a long time. Probably just because I haven't watched his stuff or have missed him. But like those guys, the ones that I I know I recognize, like mm-hmm. they 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 were young at some point, and I want to. Speaking of Giancarlo Esposito, I want to one day be as cool as he is in that first shot of him oh. overlooking the harbor and the boat with the sunglasses and the fedora and the cigar. I'm like, good lord, yes, you are cool personified. Like I if know. there is a look, like ACDC is rock and roll if there is a pure definition. I, I, there's no argument there. Everyone right. agrees with me. Mm-hmm. It's okay. But Giancarlo Esposito is the epitome of cool if there ever was one. Walking, manifested in Absolutely. our vision right there. I 100% oh, agree gosh. with you on that. It's so great. Um, yeah. Did you recognize the doctor that talks to him the first time he goes into the hospital? Which, by the way, that scene is great because he's walking and talking through the hospital, smoking his cigar the whole time, which yes. there's – just so they can make the joke that you can't smoke in the room with him, but there's no way he would have gotten that far into the hospital with that thing still lit. But did you recognize the doctor talking to him? I didn't, but I remember reading something. Who was that? Because I should have. Clark Gregg, a.k.a. Agent Coulson. Agent Coulson, that was yeah. right. Because he was going to do something else in the movie, and then they pushed him, they they bumped him over to the doctor, right? He wanted some other gig and couldn't yeah, get Yeah, I think he was going to be, he might have been in the running for Kuyan. Uh, mm-hmm. at one point and then they ended up going right. they, they got Chaz Palminteri so he ended up as the doctor um, yeah. and uh, Redfoot is another one of those where it's a character actor that I love it's Peter Green and he okay. is Peter Green is so good at playing this like smarmy slimy bad guy character that you don't trust apparently from everything that I've read 
he is just like the biggest sweetheart in real life. But every time I see him in a movie, I'm like, I don't trust that guy. And maybe it's because the first time I saw him in something was the mask and he was the bad the mask, guy. Yeah. But like, that's exactly what I thought. Even in this, like immediately you're just like, I don't trust him. I don't, I don't know who this guy is, but I don't like him. And sure enough, you know, he turns out to, to be against him, but his two scenes are just, he just drips with charisma. So yeah. he's great. Plus he's tall. I forgot how tall he was. Like he towers over, oh my gosh. towers over Gabriel Byrne. Um, and they have that great moment that, that moment, uh, between, um, Keaton and Redfoot where he's like, Hey, you know, I know I hear you knew spook halls and they have that whole thing. He's like, yeah, I shivved him. I, I thought you should hear it from me. Like, there's something about that exchange that feels like a real life exchange between crooks that you got to think yeah. happens a lot. Like, yeah, just so you know, uh, I killed your friend, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I killed that guy. And then for him to go, all right, <laughs> would, would that make you feel bad? You'd either come across going, well, now I have a mark, uh, or <laughs> right. you would go, well, shoot, I don't, that's honor among thieves, man. He just told me. Yeah. Sounds good. I, and, at least I know, and it would it, you would feel betrayed if you were working with a guy that killed your friend and had found out later. Then you'd oh, be yeah. real mad. Mm-hmm. So it was the right move. It was intense. It was a good scene. Yeah, it really, really, really was. Um, God, it's just you know, person after person, this movie that shows up is is just great. But it it's so well acted all the way through too. Nobody, yeah. nobody feels like they're phoning in a performance. It, it's like everybody wants to be there. And you get that in a movie like this, these smaller scale movies where people are, they read the script and they just really get into it. And these ensembles too, um, because nobody is, you're sort of, it, it's a little bit of everybody jockeying for being the alpha, but also everybody working together. And that's, I think what makes this like takes it to a different level is everybody bringing their a game and everybody doing so well. Yeah. So, well, it, I think it probably has a different feel when you're, you know, you're not making your money. Why would you do it? It's like Kevin right. Spacey going, I just saw Brian Singer's movie Public Access. I think he makes next. Like, that's just, that's mm-hmm. wild. You know, yeah. like an actor, and I know you, like you said, Kevin Spacey wasn't a household name or anything, but still, like, he'd been working. Oh, yeah. And you're just this new dude who's like, I made this movie, and you have somebody come out and go, I like your work enough to say I want to be in the next thing. Mm-hmm. That's that's got to be awesome, and to know, you know, they all wanted to be a part. Of it. That that that's given that the the thing they probably saw first is the script when they got it in their hands, and we're like, I'm gonna read it, and we're like, yes, I will play this part. It's original. It gave them something to do. They were allowed to bring their skills and talents to the characters because you know there was direction and there was a plan, but they clearly got to make up some of their stuff on their own. Oh yeah, um, it's it was. It's really good. It was a good opportunity for them as actors too, just to stretch their legs and do something fun. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I mean, for me, I remember Del Toro, Esposito, uh, even Baldwin. It's like I think of him in either this or Biodome. Uh, is really what I think of Stephen Baldwin in. <laughs> but it's like I remember them from this. This movie had such an impact on me as a viewer because uh, I didn't watch it until. Came out in 95. I saw it probably late 99, early 2000. Uh, it was right about the time I was graduating high school, getting into getting into college and kind of really wanting to go that film route. Uh, so mm-hmm. being young and impressionable and, and wanting to get into film and I see this and it just blew my mind. Um, I guess it's, it, it, 
might be a good idea to talk a little bit about the story. So my question for you, because you sent me a message and you're like, oh, we didn't even talk about Pete Postlethwaite as uh, Kobayashi. Oh my God. What? Yes. I thought he was F. Murray Abraham at first. Can I be <laughs> like, honest about how those guys trip me up? I'm like, <laughs> he looks like F. Murray Abraham, but not enough to be F. Murray Abraham. So I don't think that is F. Murray Abraham, <laughs> but he's darn close. Every time, that guy. See, I, I get F. I Murray Abraham, it. and there's another actor that I conflate with F. Murray Abraham, and I can't think of his name now, but he, for a while, was on one of the procedural crime shows as like the medical examiner. Um, it, it'll come to me, but he's, he's the guy that I would always yeah. conflate with F. Murray Abraham. But your your it was, what was funny was your first message was like, what accent is Pete Postlethwaite <laughs> going for in this movie? Because it was kind of all over the place. It was weird, yeah. but I don't think it was so much his accent as much as it was his cadence and the way he spoke was very clipped and very like, yeah. it felt that character more than any other character in this movie felt like somebody's description of a character being brought to screen. It was pretend. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced. I mean, I know he exists as a person, but I don't think the manifestation and that story of that character exists. I think it's Pete Postlethwaite's face on a character being described. That's completely fictitious. Uh, And and I think that because the, the, he's got like this weird Irish accent with like um, a broken English, Asian cadence, like and his name is Kobayashi, but he's like a white dude, mm-hmm. like an old British man. Nothing made sense, <laughs> and I think that's on purpose. I oh, might be off sure. base, but having seen it and knowing where it goes, that's just Kevin Spacey's or or, or Verbal Kent's brain mm-hmm. espousing this man who does not exist with a face that does. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that's where I'm at on it. No, I, I'm with you on that. And look, Postlethwaite was great in everything he was ever in. Like I can't. I can't say enough good things about that guy. I, I, I think the first thing I can recall him in was probably Dragonheart. Oh, um, yeah, man. And I loved him in that, and then I see him in this, and, of course, he would show up in all sorts of stuff. But he's great. And Kobayashi is such a a sinister character in this because, yes, you're right. He is basically a, uh, a caricature brought to life by Verbal Kint, but the way he's portrayed is so cold and calculating. I mean... You and you get that the the second they have that shot where he gets into the elevator with his two bodyguards and they both get shot and he's just like, okay, yeah. well I guess they're here to kill me then I'll like no emotion whatsoever and the casual way that he talks about castrating this guy's nephew or killing this person's father like just terrible and so well done and, and that, then for him probably because that uh, that is Kaiser Soze mm-hmm. if you know what I mean oh yeah. And then yeah. to have him show up right at the end, he's the guy in the car, uh, was was yeah. that nice little, that was the cherry on top. Um, so, okay. You, your next message to me was, dude, dude, they got me, I got bamboozled. So, <laughs> yes. walk me through watching, because this, this movie more than anything else is like the epitome of the first time you see it, if you go into it blind, the, the, emotion and the feeling that you get from how it's structured and how it's done uh, is unique among a lot of movies. I've seen a lot of movies with twists in them and twist endings, but none of them have felt like this one did that first time. So kind of walk me through what that was like as they're coming into the closing part of the movie. 
Yeah, I was I was most definitely bamboozled by these people. I was ready. I was like, I think Verbal Ken is Kaiser Sose. I'm pretty sure that he's Kaiser Sose. I think he got out of this. And then all of a sudden, it's like it's like the the agent is telling him all the things. He's like, the Keaton was Kaiser. I've known him for years. Turns out he's Kaiser Sose. I was like, son of a gun, they got me. They got me, and now I know that. Keaton, I was wrong. I, I could have sworn Kevin Spacey was Kaiser Sose. So I get all comfortable in the idea <laughs> that Keaton is Kaiser Sose. I'm sitting there like, son of a gun, they got me. And then all of a sudden, it's like, wait, wait a minute. No, I was right the whole time. Those buttholes got me to think I was wrong again. And that that was what nailed it. And I knew it was coming. I, I felt like it was coming because the dude drew the or the lady drew the picture of the man. They were faxing it real quick. I was like, oh, snap. Oh, snap. Mm-hmm. That, that verbal kid just walked out of there and he is Kaiser Soze. And he's walking down the street and then the limp, I'm like, that limp, that limp's going away. I know it in just mm-hmm. a second. It's on. It's gone. And then sure enough, the limp goes away. He relaxes his hand. He goes and it's, I'm like, well done, Christopher McQuarrie. You got me. What I love about it is, so they, they, they tip their hand ahead of time, but never fully. So, like, there's lines in the movie that happen earlier. There's a line where Verbal tells the agent, look, you know, to a cop, it's always easy. If you, you gotta, if a guy's killed and you think his brother did it, you're going to find out you're right. And sure enough, a few minutes later, Kuyan's like, no, I think it's Keaton. And he's going to figure out that it is Keaton to him. Um, you've got other things like uh, you mentioned the, the whole sketch artist thing uh, and how that didn't play out until after Verbal is leaving the office. And then when he goes up to the evidence locker and they're handing him his stuff and they're like, one watch, gold, one cigarette lighter, gold. And if you're paying attention to the beginning of the movie, you're like, oh, well, there. In fact, I think on the commentary track, Brian Singer even says like, yeah, we pretty much just tell you like 30 seconds before we reveal it, that this is Kaiser Soze. Like, yeah, it's so well done. But the other thing was not letting the actors know, like Gabriel Byrne actually believing he was Kaiser Soze up until the final edit. And, and I guess according to, again, what I read was that Singer, Macquarie, and Spacey had all decided going into it that, you know, Verbal was Kaiser Soze, but they wanted to portray it. Because there's even little things like the way um, Hockney holds his gun sideways, they, that, that was a specific thing to make you think maybe Hockney could be him. The, yeah. the whole of the shootout and how it's shot makes you think it's a, it's a totally other person that isn't anybody in the crew. Um, it's just, it's so great. It's so, it's such a good use of the reveal before the reveal, before the reveal, like there's, there's layers to it. And that's where, when you watch it back, you're going to notice things that either you gloss over the first time or you take completely differently. It's sort of like the best description. And I've used this before, but it's like going and seeing a play. And then going and seeing that same play, but sitting on the other side of the auditorium and you're seeing it from a different angle. And it's like watching something completely different. You watch the movie again, you see all the gears turning inside Verbal's head. You see him figuring everything out and how he's going to play this and how he's going to work. Even the, to the point where like Kuyan, one of the first things he says to him is I'm smarter than you. And so what is Verbal in for? Or what, what was Verbal into Kaiser for? Verbal was into Kaiser for taking money from a less than intelligent courier. He's basically calling Kulian stupid without saying it to his face. And I love that because he's just like, he's so confident. And 
rightfully so. He gets away with it. But, you know, watching him watching him taking everything from the the board and the room and the and the way he manipulates it all. It's so good. And this is this is really just like a classic noir thing. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you exactly who it is at the beginning, but you're not going to notice. <laughs> yeah, until oh, yeah. I, I let you in on it. And and it rewards it does a couple things. Like it rewards people who are really observant and and are trying to actively work it out. If they want to, all the details are there. And that's that's very important in a mystery. The mystery mm-hmm. sucks if there was never a chance for you to solve it. Like, you can't have a mystery where there was no shot at it. I'm going to introduce this wild character that never existed at the end of the movie, and it's going to be like, oh, I would have never found that out because he wasn't there. This character exists from the start, mm-hmm. is the key of the plot at the start, is they're telling you the story at the start, and it gives you just enough breadcrumbs that if you want to know you can figure it out, but not really enough for you to be confident about it. Right. It's like there's enough for you to go. I think that's it. Kind of like I was. I think. I think that dude is probably it, but only because I love mysteries and I follow this stuff, and I know if it's a good mystery, the character has to be on the screen. Um, yep. The guy, the Who Done It, you know, like Knives Out was really good about this, except it was like this wild, oh yeah, insane ride. But uh, but Knives Out was like really good about everybody everybody that's ever going to be in play in this story is at play at the beginning like these mm-hmm. are all at the start of the mystery they all exist and that's a that's a key man you gotta have that if you're gonna let people have fun yeah absolutely um oh, where was it i had a note that brian singer okay brian singer described this film as a mixture of double indemnity 1944 film meets rashomon uh, and said that it was made so you can go back and see all sorts of things you didn't realize were there the first time. Uh, you can get the yeah. second time uh, the way you never could the first time around. And it's true. I mean, you watch it again, and it's just it's a whole different movie now because now you know everything uh, that that Verbal knows and that Kaiser knows. And it, it's just it's great. Plus, like, little things like the name Kaiser Soze and Kaiser and Kint and Soze is not exactly Hungarian, but it's very close to the Hungarian word for talkative or verbal. Yeah. So he's basically King Blabbermouth. <laughs> I like that, that which, trivia. I read that too. Yeah, which is which is great because it, it means that the name, any of those names are completely made up. Like there probably is no Kaiser Soze and he made it up. And it's just brilliant. Um, I also really, really liked... Uh, just the the cat and mouse part of it, like the 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 mental back and forth between Verbal and Agent Kuyan, because Kuyan just thinks he knows from the minute he walks in there, he knows it's Dean Keaton, and he's got everything he needs to back that up, and all the evidence can point that way, right up until he sees the facts and uh, and and all of that. Like it's just it's amazing. It's so well done, Macquarie. He deserved, and I think he won Best Adapted Screenplay that year. Uh, Oscar was that adapted that was that was original original, no best original I'm sorry um yeah and deservedly so like McCoy he just kills it in this and he's gone on to have a hell of a career if you look at what he did I liked the way of the gun it's not perfect but it was a it was a pretty decent movie he wrote and directed that but now I mean he's doing uh his third and fourth Mission Impossible films yeah, I was about to say you can't really say Macquarie without bringing up Mission Impossible. Like he's he kind of that franchise. Not to say it was dying, but like nobody really cared. Um, 
until the the whole Saudi Arabia Brad Bird one came out. Not yeah. Saudi Arabia. What was it Dubai? Yeah. Dubai and the cur- the falling off the building and stuff. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And that was a Macquarie joint too. Didn't he write that one? Uh, he I believe wrote it. Um, yeah, no, but he's he directed. didn't. No, he that didn't wasn't. write that one. No, that gun. was um. He did wrote. He started with Rogue Nation. He started with the one Rogue after Nation. that. Okay, gotcha. Either way, he's done a good job with that. Brad oh, totally. Bird brought it back to life, and McCory is keeping it going. Mm-hmm. Well done. Yeah, and and it's nice to see him branching out as both a writer and a director too, because he's directed uh, those four Mission Impossible films. Um, he directed yeah. Jack Reacher, and uh, then he went on to do four different Mission Impossible films. And it, it, he's got an eye for it. Now, he did, what was it I read? He worked in a um, a detective agency prior to yeah. this movie. And so his depiction of criminals and law enforcement was from that. Plus, he's in the movie, too. Um, he is one of the interrogating officers. And so the commentary track for this DVD I had, uh, I loved it because it was Singer and Macquarie. So it's these two guys. You could tell they'd been friends for a long time. And listening to them talk about this movie was great. Macquarie tells this story of he took his, I think it was his grandmother and a bunch of her church ladies to see the movie. And he was, she, cause his grandmother was so proud of him and he was so excited to take them all. And then as they're watching it, he realizes the language that's going on. And he's just like, I was just shrinking down in my seat, <laughs> just getting more and more embarrassed as it goes along. Um, but yeah, he, he's, he gets to be kind of the foil and he's right at the end of the movie. Um, there's the shot of Kuyan. And then as it pulls back, you see him as one of the, he's the guy in the policeman's uniform laughing and staring directly at the camera, which I thought was great. <laughs> That's pretty good. So gotcha. Yeah, pretty much. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. There's just, there's so many twists and turns. Funny thing is Roger Ebert did not like this movie. Right. I read that. And you know, can I, if I'm being honest, I first got done with the movie. I was like, that was good. You know, I was like, that was good. The mystery was fun. But like the ride, I feel like if if I'm going to be brutally honest about it, I was a little bored until we finally started taking off. Maybe at the garage attack shootout thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's where it started to lean in. I'm like, OK, I'm I'm getting more invested here. Oh, yeah. I'm starting to get curious. It took a long time for me to get curious. At first, I'm just like, why do I even, who are these people? What, why do I even bother with them? Um, and I, I don't know if maybe Roger Ebert got there and then couldn't get out. Like, couldn't get out of that hole of, of not being curious anymore. Some of it was um, that. I actually read his review. And in his review, he said yeah. uh, he's, he watched it and he had no idea what was going on. And so he watched it a second okay. time taking notes and partway through the movie, he realized that, no, he doesn't need to know what's going on. None of it matters. But then he couldn't get into it. So it just it just right. never grabbed him. And I can get that because it's sure. the first time I saw it, I kind of felt the same way. I had heard about it and I was watching it. And I'm like, OK, this is fine. This is you know an interesting premise. And I like these actors. But where's the story going? And it's almost a movie that you you don't have to watch twice to appreciate, but it's after you get done and you have some time to reflect on it and you realize, Holy crap, what I just watched was actually really well made and really well written. And now I want to go watch it again and try to try to pick it apart a little bit more. Um, it, it's almost, it's like a, uh, 
it's like a film buffs film in a way. Like it's not a shut your brain off and just sort of enjoy it. Uh, mm-hmm. But you don't necessarily have to pay attention to all the details. The, the minutia of the movie doesn't matter as much as kind of what the outcome ends up being. It's weird. It's weird to describe uh, why. Yeah. And Smashy yeah. says, you know, having ADHD helps enjoy the randomness of the movie. That's true. That actually plays in, you know, it's a strength of the movie uh, for sure. Yeah, so, yeah, it, it's, it's one of those, I, it's not to fault people who've told me about this movie, but I think the hype train was just like off the charts for me going into this thing. Like mm-hmm. Jacob has was like, what have you not seen this movie for? <laughs> it's the same thing with you. You were like, what are you doing an episode? And I've had more people come out and be like, how has he not seen this movie? What is wrong with him? So I'm sitting down with like all these expectations on me. Like I got to love the crap out of this movie. Like I got to, I got to like love it. Like I got to pull it into my heart keep it there safe and uh and that was kind of like so i'm walking in going like uh oh i don't i don't know that i'm i don't know it's jiving with me y'all i oh lord i gotta talk about this tomorrow and travis gonna be so upset that I'm, i didn't like it but then it finally got it um and there's there's a few things at play like this has been a hard week if you can see i'm not at my house it's because mm-hmm. i got out of there because it was making me nuts so i was like packing for a trip i'm a dad i've got like all these other things like weighing me down I'm like it's 8 30 i want to go to bed but i gotta watch this movie for <laughs> so at first it started out as work too so i was in a completely wrong headspace mm-hmm. but about an hour in and they start talking to redwood things start getting confusing and i'm like oh okay all right i'm down now i'm in <laughs> i'm ready i've got i'm sitting here comfortable <laughs> like yeah. i can it took it just took a little while to get the engine going, and I feel bad for Roger Ebert because there there is a joy in this movie when you get it when it when it finally you know and watching it with a critical eye it's harder you know if you just oh, watch sure. it to have some fun you can have some fun but when you're watching it to go I got to write about this later mm-hmm. like I would been a whole different whole different boat I can talk about it with you because you already like it and I feel your energy and then it makes me like it more right mm-hmm. like that's yeah, always oh, yeah. a good driver. Well, and in, you know, another thing. So we talked a little bit about Brian Singer, but Brian Singer in this movie, the way the script is written and then his direction. And again, it's that thing we were talking about earlier with like art and artist. He's a talented director. He did, I think, as good a job as you could do in the early days of comic book films with the early X-Men movies. Some of it hasn't aged great, but they're still highly enjoyable to watch. Um, I personally liked Superman Returns. I know you, I think we've talked about it before. You like that movie. Yeah, I like it in the yeah, through a particular lens. Yes, yes, I like it. If it's a love letter, Richard Donner, I get it. Mm-hmm. That That's fine. But yeah. some of the stuff he did in this is great. There's so many visual cues. The the um, the way they intercut the, uh, the interrogation stuff at the beginning where they would match cut lines. So you would start to see... Fenster say I want my lawyer but then you hear Keaton's voice as it switches over to him um, there's little things like that it, towards the end of the movie where you'll hear um, what is it uh, you hear Agent Kuyan talking about guys marching into certain death and they use the shot of, of verbal saying certain death in the car but with with uh, Kuyan's voice like stuff like that yeah. is really fun but also there's little, there's little um, things like they give away and when you watch it again, you'll notice this. They give away that Hockney stole the gun parts right away. Because if you remember, Kuyan has that line, 
you know how you spot a murderer? You put three guys in jail, and when you wake up the next morning, the guy that's, or when you come in the next morning, the guy that's sleeping is your guy. Well, go back and watch the scene where they're all sitting in the jail cell. Hockney's laying down. That's their shorthand for it. Yeah. He stole the guns, and then they reveal it later. Um, so I just love all those little things. There's like all these little fun storytelling bits that you get. Um, and for me, that's that's fun stuff to watch and to find. Like I find little things every time I watch this movie. That I'm like, oh, I didn't even notice that before. Um, so that's always cool. Yeah. And we did talk about some of the weird things that got left in, like you know, changing the the whole of the lineup scene. Um, when Redfoot flicks his cigarette at uh, McManus and it hits him in the eye, that wasn't <laughs> supposed to happen. He was supposed to hit him in the chest, but they just kept it in because it was such a good reaction. And it really, it like, yeah, okay. that's so bad. Um, uh, yeah. I watched that thinking like, did they, I was like, that just hit him in the face. Like that, <laughs> that was terrible. And it made it so much better. So much better. Oh yeah. Uh, the emeralds they had in the movie were real. That's crazy. That's cool. Uh, yeah. they, they, you have to like, I, I would not have wanted to be on set that day. That would have been so nerve wracking to have that much, uh, that much worth of, I, I don't know that many emeralds. We'll go with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that much worth of emeralds. <laughs> yes, there you go. Uh, the other thing that I I always love is so you mentioned the um, the turning point of the movie kind of for you was the whole garage scene with uh, the character sure, of Saul, yeah. which is a really great scene because again, let's give away the fact that Verbal is the guy behind all this because he's the one who shoots Saul, right? Um, but. Uh, the other part to it is when that scene starts off, Hockney and Fenster are telling a joke. Um, right. The, and that joke gets paid off later if you speak Hungarian. <laughs> the punchline for that joke is spoken on the boat by one of the Hungarians later on in the movie, which I thought That's was... That's so cool. Like, just a cool Dude, that, little in-joke. That detail, like, it's that level of detail that through that, those lines that you just you throw it out there and eventually you can't, it's on the other end. It's like, that's... That's so that kind of stuff in filmmaking is what makes it makes movies magic when it happens. You're like somebody thought enough to put that little that little bit in there. What I loved about that garage scene and what I think might have pulled me in is Keaton's hesitation to shoot Saul. Like mm-hmm. he just wasn't gonna do it. Like <laughs> just like just give me the thing. The guy tries to shoot him and he's still like just give me the case. Yeah. And I'm like, why is he holding back so much on this guy? Like he's. He's a killer, right? Like, that's what we're that's led to thing. believe. Yeah, and then he doesn't do it, and I'm, I was I was kind of struck by that. I think that's where my curiosity started to grow. I'm like, what? What's going on here? Why is he not the cold blooded killer we're made to believe he is? Yeah, that was kind of cool. Um, and I also like the the shot of Baldwin where he picks up the the two guns and he's aiming both of them like. Yes. Such a just badass moment to take both those guys out with one shot. I remember watching that thinking, okay, it's probably completely unrealistic, but I don't care. It's awesome. Like it's it just awesome. looks great. while wearing while wearing sunglasses. Let's sunglasses. not forget that. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. In a dark in a garage. Yeah, in an underground <laughs> parking structure. Like it's just so good. Uh it, it's wild. You know, I could go on and on about this movie and just like the feelings that I get from it. But w- what's great too, like watch it again. You don't not not necessarily right away, but yeah. when you watch it again, 
I'm really going to be curious to, to hear what you think of it as a second viewing because of all the stuff now you're going to know and just yeah. how different it feels. So, Oh, I'm doing it. That's that's I can't wait to hear that because uh, that's going to be great. This movie, this is a movie that I feel like if you're into film at all, you should watch because it's a great way to write a mystery. Um, and it's yeah. it's a way to write a mystery. You mentioned Knives Out. That's a great comparison in, you know, laying everything out at the beginning of the movie. And then now we're going to deconstruct that and we're going to play with it. And this movie sort of does the same thing where it just keeps giving you these little breadcrumbs. And these little things. And then that it's been parodied a bunch. The whole thing where he's standing uh, or he's sitting down and he's looking over the board. And then you make the connection of Skokie, Illinois and quartets. And you start seeing all the stuff. Like, that's great. Apparently, there is no actual Kobayashi porcelain company. Right. You can can buy them. You can buy them on Amazon, which I kind of want one. But like that even is a thing. When, when you watch it the first time, you're not paying attention to the fact that Verbal is looking around the room or that he's looking at the bottom of that coffee mug because it just looks like he's just nervous or he's you know he doesn't know what's going on. You watch it the second time, you're seeing all of that play out and you're just seeing the masterful way that he plays with Kuyan for the entirety of the movie and it's so good. So. Yeah, I'm going to go back and, uh, and watch it again because Steph didn't watch it with me last night. And I'm, she's never seen it either. She's also somehow remained completely spoiler-free on it. Uh, so I'm going to watch it again with her. Cause I'm like, I'm not ruining the movie for you. Like you're just going to have to watch it. Cause it was fun. And it's one of those movies. It's up her alley. She would dig it. She loves this mm-hmm. mystery stuff. And what I, what I love about these mysteries and these, this and other noir, even in books, like you're right. You don't really, nothing matters. Like nope. most of it doesn't matter. It's simply stuff to tell you stuff that you need to know that gets the mystery rolling. Like, I, None of the things that Benicio del Toro did had any consequence, nope. but they were fun to watch. Oh. Like I've I've read noir novels where like the detective gets punched out, ends up in like a psychiatric ward, has a tussle with somebody, and none of that really came to fruition. It was just a thing they threw into the middle of the book to pat it and give it some action, and then they're like back to the mystery. And yeah. you don't care. You wrote it. You rode that wave and had fun with it. So what does it matter? Yeah, because this like. What I take away from this is it's more of a study of kind of people and in the nature of people. And in this case, you've got the nature of somebody who is a con artist and how good is he as a con artist? He's such a good con artist. He, he pretends to be a sort of okay con artist to get away with, uh, doing something that's even worse. And it's just, it's, it's really cool. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I love this movie. Is This is in my top five all-time films. I've really? seen it. I can't tell you how many times, and I never get tired of it. I've quoted it. Uh, I love the, like, there's, okay, uh, there's this. This is the most famous quote from the movie. And the funny thing is, apparently, neither Brian Singer or Chris McQuarrie realized that they were pulling a quote from a French poem when they used this. Uh, but it's this one. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that gets used a lot. That's a great one. Um, where's the other? Oh, this, I use this a lot. You're making me tired all over. You're making me tired all over. It's such <laughs> a good. great, like, I don't know what it is about that, but it, it feels like something you can say to somebody and they're going to kind of look at you like, wait, what? I'm doing what to you now? And meanwhile, you're <laughs> telling them off pretty bad. Um, 
Yeah. It's oh, so good. Like I can't. And, yeah. and to make it this long for you to make it this long, spoiler free is the other great thing because again, we're talking 26 years ago, this film came out or almost 26 years ago. And it's, yeah. it's really been part of, I mean, the, the whole Kaiser Soze reveal is sort of a almost tropey now. Yeah. So, I don't know how I've made it. I, I think it's just, it's just the fact that it is old and when it wasn't old, I didn't know anybody who had seen it. Mm-hmm. So now that it's so old, no one talks about it. It's not like the usual suspects comes up in general conversation is like, let me talk about the ending to that. That's not really something true. you do. That's true. You know, people talk about Harry Potter all the time. You know the spoilers in that because there's no way to avoid it. But this movie's, it's. I still haven't seen Seven either, Travis. And I, I don't know anything about that movie either. It hasn't been spoiled for me either because people don't talk about old movies just for fun except for you and me. And you know I haven't seen it. So you're not going to ruin it for me, right? It's true. Nope, I won't ruin it yet. We'll save that for uh, later on this Another year. Another episode. <laughs> yeah. And and the thing is, like, uh, oh, shoot. I had, a th- I had a thought, and I was really excited about it, and now it's gone. And there's no getting it back. Don't well, worry about it. Who it'll, knows? Maybe it'll fine. come back. Uh, one other neat little thing that they did in this. Again, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this movie. Um, there's a lot of lines that come back later on that if you're paying attention uh, and you hear it when you when you watch the movie again, you're like, oh god, that line, like that line's brilliant. When they, so they get the briefcase from Kobayashi, and when they're in that room with the billiard table, first of all, they the um, singer intentionally jacked the audio way up for when the click happens to to like give people a bit of a jump scare. So the the click of the briefcase opening up is extra loud. Uh, but <laughs> then when he opens that and he starts pulling stuff out the envelopes come out in the order that everyone dies. Oh, that's cool. So that's another one of those little things that you'll, when you watch it the next time, you'll notice he, he hands it to Fenster first, then it's Hockney McManus. He picks up an envelope and then he gives verbal his. Mm. So that's awesome. See this kind of stuff, like you're talking about earlier, it makes you, when you were going into film, you know, for college is the, thing i also went into film for college and look we both now just talk about movies and yeah. wishing we made them <laughs> but this is the kind of movie that you would watch that makes you believe you can do that stuff oh, absolutely. and it's the kind of movie i make i'm like i'm like shoot i could make a movie where five guys stand in a row and make jokes and then do this or that and then this proceeds and it makes you feel like you i think it might be why we are drawn to this stuff is because it's like that movie is made in one town in 35 days for a small budget i could probably do that but then but then, for me, I learn about all the planning that went in to make all yeah. these cool people's work. And I'm like, nope, not at all. <laughs> not in the least bit. Never going to be me, ever. Yeah, it, it, it definitely, though, it, it shows what can be done at, at a small budget and a small film to tell a compelling story that doesn't have to have, like it has action, but it doesn't have to have these giant action set pieces. Um, there's even stuff like, the the insert shots of Kaiser Soze walking away, dropping the cigarette and his shoe and all that. That was shot in Brian Singer's backyard, right? That was yeah. Brian Singer and the direct and the the um, editor. Which, by the way, I have to have to talk about John Ottman as both the editor and composer of this because I love his music. The music in this this is one of my favorite soundtracks to just put on and chill out to because it's got some of that swelling kind of heavy music, but there's a lot of very chill, just piano and a couple of instrument stuff. That's great to have on for background, but to have your composer, also your editor is an interesting combination and really cool because 
now he gets to see the flow of the movie and his music is going to fit so much better. He also uh, edited this on film. He didn't, he didn't digitize and edit it. Uh, He did it old school on film, um, which is just crazy. Yeah. He had like an old uh, Steenbeck, I think they called it machine and it was reels and he was cutting, he was physically cutting film and putting it together, which is nuts. you know, the coolest thing I learned when I was in film school for the semester was uh, was the fact that, like, crossfades and stuff were done by actually overlaying the film on top yep. of each other and then, like, rolling it off. It was, I'm like, that's the coolest move. Like, that, I'm, I'm down. That's how they did that before they oh. could do just, like, wipes and stuff easily. It's, that's just old, crazy. Old school filmmaking. I love stuff like that. Old school, not only editing, but, like, effects. And and yeah. the ways that you would get certain shots, just I love stuff like that. Also, well, too, it's 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 the art though of of understanding what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Like cinematography is the art of knowing that the only thing that matters is what's in my lens. Yeah, and that's what Brian Singer's backyard exemplifies. Like we just need something to blow up. We mm-hmm. don't. It doesn't matter if it blows up on the boat. It right. just matters that, and and it, it, to give it some props to Jim Henson, he understood this probably better than anybody because he turned a camera into his puppet stage, and yeah. he's like, it "Doesn't matter if I'm, in, I don't need to be in front of a box on camera. The camera's my box. Like yeah. the camera, what it can't see is what matters. That crap blows my mind, and that's why I'll never be a great filmmaker because I think that I need to be where the thing is. People are right. like, no, look at miniatures. You don't need to. Miniatures are great." You know, you can put miniatures wherever you want and just film that one spot, and that's, shoot, it's genius. Yep, and then every once in a while you get lucky. If I remember correctly, the shot of McManus running on the rooftop with the moon in the background, yeah. I, I believe that was actually the moon that night. <laughs> I want to say that in the commentary they talked about, it, like it just happened to frame perfectly, and they're like, let's use the hell out of it. Because yeah. it looks, it it looks, and maybe it's not. Maybe I'm I'm uh, conflating that, or I'm I'm Mandela affecting myself. But like, yeah, that just looks so good. But you're right. That's that's cinematography, right? The only things that exist are what's inside the lens of the camera and what we can see. And you can make anything work. I, I see it uh, all the time when you uh, when you look at something. You're like, oh, I can see where the where the budget went on this because this particular scene, all the shots are low angle, so you don't see the background. Right, because we yeah. can't afford we can't afford to go on location, so we're just going to shoot everything. So all you see is the sky, because that can be anywhere. <laughs> um, but when it's done well, you can see how, with a small budget, they can really get away with a lot of stuff. If they, you're right, it's the planning, and then it's a skill. It's a skill of a director working with a cinematographer. Newton Thomas Siegel, I believe, did the cinematography for this and every Brian Singer film afterwards. Um. And yeah. it helps, too, when you've got Singer and McQuarrie, who are friends, who know each other prior to working on this. So there's there's a lot of creative shorthand that they can have uh, going into, as opposed to two guys that have never worked together before. Because um, you don't get the yeah. film that we have in The Usual Suspects without that kind of a, a relationship between your writer and your director. Yeah. And then the... <clears throat> the passion that those two guys can bring to it and the enthusiasm can then rub off on all of your actors and you get this great ensemble of skilled actors and they just, every one of them kills it. Like I understand totally why this movie won awards. The camaraderie 
the camaraderie matters. I mean, that's why Tim Burton works with Johnny Depp. Sorry, I said yeah. the Johnny Depp name. I know he's another one we can't talk about. But, like, that's why Tim Burton works with Johnny Depp. That's why uh, That's why Scorsese works with DiCaprio. It's once you can speak the language with each other and you, you communicate well. Because how many conversations have you been in where you swear you're ta- you're saying what someone can understand, but they keep talking past you and you're like, you can't meet on a frequency, like, mm-hmm. together. You're like... I know we're talking about the same thing, but we're talking about it in two different ways and neither of us can understand what the other's talking about. Yeah. And like, that's the, that's horrifying. Oh, I've been in that space with people I work with. Like I need this answer and I know you have it and I know I'm asking it, but it's the only way I can say it. And they're like, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, shoot. I know he just gave me the answer, <laughs> but it's not in a way I can understand it. <laughs> like I think about that when it comes to actors and movies, knowing that these these screenwriters and directors always work with the same people if they can. It's because they found it. They found that zone where they're like, boom. Yep. person know what we're doing together. And I Ab- want to work with them as much as possible because they let me do my best work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it comes through and you see that. Uh, one last yeah. thing I wanted to bring up was McManus was also almost played by somebody very different. I don't know if you read that one or not. Michael Bean uh, was actually Michael offered Bean. the role of McManus. Um, uh, uh, Hicks from Aliens. Nope, that's not helping me. That's not the name I need to go to. Uh, or that's not the movie. Kyle Reese in Terminator. Okay, I know his face. I got you. Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo. There you go. Johnny Ringo. Yeah. That I know. He was almost <laughs> McManus, and he passed on it, and uh, apparently has gone on to say, yeah, I should have taken that role. That was a mistake, yeah. Dude, there's so many people that I read about later that you, you kind of go, what happened to that dude or that woman? Where'd she go? Uh, one that comes to mind is Allison Duty from uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. She has been offered roles in some of the biggest movies that have happened in the last 20 years and passed on all of them. And I'm like... What are you doing? <laughs> Who is your agent? And when are you going to fire them? Yeah. And, you know, it, it's funny because sometimes you just don't know, right? Like, there's no yeah, way to no. know half the time. No. So unless you are a Tom Cruise or a Will Smith, and even then it can happen to them. Will Smith, class, you know, famously turned down the role of Neo in The Matrix. Yeah. So And thank goodness he did. It wouldn't have worked with him, I don't think. It, it would have been very have different. Would have been very different. It's the same thing. Sean Connery. Could you imagine the Sean Connery Will Smith Matrix? Because uh, Sean Connery was offered the role of Morpheus and yeah. turned it down because he didn't get it. Um, well, he also turned down the role of Gandalf because he didn't get it. Right. And you know, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate an actor not taking a role they don't get. Right. Sure. Because yeah. it 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 doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help you as an actor. And it doesn't help the film if you just take a role because it's offered to you. So I get that. Right. But yeah, yeah. Uh, Usual totally Suspects. If you if you haven't seen it by now and we've spoiled it for you anyway, go go watch it because it's still fun. If you haven't if if you haven't watched it in a while, go back and and watch it again because honestly, it's still enjoyable. I have lost count of the number of times I've watched this movie, and I enjoy it every single time. The the best the best reaction I can give you is that I am happy that my friends made me watch it. That is the best review that I can provide is that okay. I am very glad that I was given this excuse to watch it. Plus, I get to come on this show with my buddy Travis and chat about it. And that is that is fantastic. I would have I would have enjoyed it without this, but at the same time, it's definitely a cherry on top. 
<laughs> well, it's it's always great to have you on and talk. We've done it a few times now, and it, it's always a good conversation because we we both kind of come at it from a, a similar mindset, which is great because I can kind of guess a little bit of what you're going to think. And every once in a while, you throw me a curveball, so I like that. <laughs> now, you've got a we do a show together called Staring at Goats. Um, Staring at Goats Wednesdays at uh, Wednesday nights, uh, 90 p.m. on uh, twitch.tv slash tv. Thank you, Travis. Um, but you have another one, too. What's the other show that you do? Yeah. The other show that we do, uh, you would call it maybe our flagship show, is Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. It's a comedy show about odd and crazy news from all over the world. Uh, we call it that, but generally we go in so many tangents we form a circle. Uh, and that is the <laughs> thank you subject to change, a wonderful listener who gave us that one. Uh, but that's every Thursday night at 9 p.m. on uh, uh, twitch.tv slash TV. Uh, or you can join us in the chat, and generally we just we reap the entire chat for all the jokes that we give, and we take all the credit for it. Uh, it's so a, get in there. Yeah, it's a super <laughs> fun show. I I try not to miss it ever, unless I'm uh, getting on to play a scary game uh, that night. Like I I catch it because I just love the the show itself. Um, yes. So that's a good pro tip, JF. I like Is, that. What did I do that? Did yes, I do you that did. successfully? Yes, I think so. Because it, it, yes. it, is, it is a variety. It is a variety show, right? And it, it's, it's Oh, he's talking about staring at goats. You failed staring at goats. Er, fine. <laughs> All right. So staring at goats is the show that you and I do with producer Jacob. And uh, we talk about COVID, COVID news and uh, things that are going on, how we're dealing with the pandemic, um, where we think things are going. So staring at goats... Remind me again, the name came from Lando, right? Yeah, we yeah. had an original third host yes. uh, for 10, for 10, uh, 10 episodes. He was like, you know, I'm just sitting out here in quarantine wondering which of my goats I'm going to eat first. And we that's what that's where it came <laughs> from. It has absolutely no standing now. But we, we went with it. And here we are. <laughs> well, I mean, hey, you know, you, you go with it. I, I uh, run a goat video on my screen behind me every week when we do the show, so. Sure, try yeah. to try it's to keep only, with it's the, the only context we've got, <laughs> <laughs> but you know it, that show has been actually pretty helpful for me in dealing with all this stuff because it, it get it allows me to read some stories and get some different perspectives and talk to you guys about it and um, you can uh, you, you know if if you're at all dealing with this pandemic in in weird ways or you want another perspective it's it's a good show to check out uh, and then yeah. if you just want to laugh horseshoes and hand grenades. All, all the way. You guys are a hoot good palate cleanser. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Now this show, um, I record typically 8 PM Eastern time, uh, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. If you want to be like smashy, the, um, head gamer, gene pool podcast, Danny Ora, JF Dubow, and come hang out in the chat room. Um, that's great. Next week is a fun one. I've got, um, uh, Bjorn Miller, AKA Bombats. And uh, Leaping Duck are going to come on. We're going to talk about Predator. Neither one of them have ever seen the movie oh, before. Oh, snap. And oh, get I to the you, chopper. I tell you what, I am looking forward to this because this is another one of those movies that I will watch anytime. Uh, it's, you know, it's dumber than a bag of hammers, but it is so much fun. So I cannot wait to talk about Predator. It's so stupid. Week. It really is, but it's... It's oh. so stupid. I'm, and, gonna, I'm, I'm ready. And it's got great behind-the-scenes stories to tell, too. Just like this movie had a has an amazing making of, the making of Predator is 
almost more entertaining than the movie itself. So I can't wait for that. Um, until... I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> yeah. Not only that, but two future governors are in that movie. Governor of Minnesota and the governor worse. of California. So, yeah, uh, I cannot wait. Until then, um, you know, we, we like to say on this show to remember to enjoy your movies. And the world is crazy right now, so everybody be good. Be excellent to each other. There's been weight you haven't seen. Friday already? Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>